This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Well, good morning, Axis Church. My name is Brooks. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here at the Axis, and today we are continuing on in our study of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, penned by historian and doctor, his name is Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's a series we've entitled, The Real Jesus, The Real Jesus, because there is no more important question that you will ever face than, who is Jesus, and what is my response to the real Jesus? So we don't want to assume we know him. We want to encounter him again in the pages of God's Word. So let's pray again and ask for God's help as we now attend to the Scriptures. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach you as such. Father, we confess that we are an anxious people, and we pray now that we would hear the words of the Lord Jesus in fresh and deep ways that eradicates anxiety. Lord, you have said that perfect love casts out fear and that you are love. And so I pray that through the Spirit, you would, you would do that now. You would give us peace to our souls through confidence in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, as we say, it's always important to start with context when we come to the scriptures so that we understand the flow of thought that we've been in. And today, this is especially true because our text begins with a therefore. So this tells us everything today is the logical follow-up from what Jesus just said. So it's this, therefore, this, now. So in some ways, today is part two of last week's message, which you can find on the website if you missed it. So where are we at today? Where do we find ourselves? Well, Jesus has stirred up quite a crowd, so much so that the text says people were, were trampling over each other to get to him. And last week, there was a man who lifted up his voice and called out to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, command my brother to split the inheritance with me. And Jesus hears this, and, and he responds, but rather than responding directly to the man's question, he goes deeper. He responds by way of a parable, and in so doing, he cracks open this man's heart, revealing the deep and dangerous motive that drove him to make the request in the first place. This parable, this story, was about a rich man who came into even more wealth. So think American when you hear that. That's what we should think. And rather than being generous with this overflow, he built a bigger barn to store it. And he decided to coast for the rest of his life, to retire. For him, this was salvation. This, this was the dream. But Jesus taught us that placing our faith, finding salvation in stuff in a bigger barn is not the path of life. Rather, it shows perhaps that we are on the path to death eternally. That, that's heavy, and Jesus meant it to be. Verses 19 and 20 from last week's 
text. This is right after the man develops his bigger barn strategy. I will say to my soul, so he's having this internal dialogue, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. You've arrived. So just relax. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. Probably the most tragic syllable ever uttered. This night, your soul is required of you. Man says, plenty of stuff. Enjoy an easy, comfortable life for a while. Smart. God says, fool. See, there was a ransom on that man's soul, and he didn't realize it. There is no currency on this earth that can ransom back the human soul. A bigger barn, a fatter bank, a false hope eternally. This is the point Jesus is making. This is the great human tragedy. Being deceived by thinking earthly pleasure is the goal, and so never securing an eternal provision. Or to borrow Jesus' words, laying up treasure on earth, but not being rich towards God. This is the great human tragedy. And as we mentioned last week, this is a huge temptation for every one of us because what Jesus painted as our greatest nightmare, we have a name for it in our culture. We call it the American dream. And there's not any of us who haven't been affected and even infected by that. It's in the air that we breathe. So this couldn't be more relevant. I looked it up this week. The size of the average house in America has increased by 1,000 square feet in the last 40 years. And we are not 1,000 square feet happier. We need a better salvation. And so Jesus is speaking directly to us, and it's, it's on the heels of this parable that Jesus now turns from the crowd to his disciples, and he's going to apply what he just said to the crowd specifically to their situation. That's, that's where we're at. Our text begins with these words. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, in light of that parable, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Before we continue on in the text, though, I want to take a moment to address the topic of anxiety a little more generally, because here is something I know is true. Though all of us struggle with anxiety from time to time, there are many here who anxiety is not just an occasional annoyance, but either is or has been a paralyzing affliction. I know that anxiety disorder is the number one mental health issue of our time, and I know for a fact that the church is in no way immune to it. And if we're honest, we haven't always known what to do with it or how to even talk about it. I, I've heard some well-meaning Christians just say, well, anxiety is a sin, and then act like that's dealt with the matter. Jesus said, don't be anxious, and to disobey Jesus is sin. That settles it. But does it? I would say no. I would say that is simplistic, and that is unhelpful. Rather, patience, compassion, and encouragement must be our rule. 
We must give to others what we need ourselves. And sure, Jesus does tell us to not be anxious, but not all commands are said with the same tone of voice, and every child knows it. There's a big difference between commanding a child not to punch their sister in the head again and telling them that they don't need to fear when a thunderstorm comes. There's a difference between those commands, is there not? Here's how we don't respond when our, one of our girls comes to our door during the night when there's a storm. We don't respond like this. I can't believe you disobeyed my command to not fear thunderstorms. I don't care if the lightning was terrifying, and I don't care if your window was rattling. You were told to not be anxious. And now you've disobeyed. That would be a strange way to respond, right? Let's not be simplistic. There is a huge difference between being obstinate, punching sister in head, and being scared, being anxious, crying during a storm. One requires discipline, the other requires compassion and the comfort of presence. I find 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to be so helpful and instructive here as we care for each other in the church. Paul says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all right? This is the Spirit of Christ. He looks out at the crowds and sees that they're distressed, and what's it say? He has compassion with them. He suffers with those who suffer. And if you are someone who knows the affliction of anxiety well, here are two things I want you to hear up front before we make our way through the text. Number one, Jesus has nothing but compassion for you. Surely, He has borne our grief. He doesn't take it lightly, and He doesn't think you're a burden. The incarnation and the cross show that he has taken every fracture the fall has caused very seriously. He's a merciful high priest. And number two, and this is especially important for our time, your anxiety isn't too much for Jesus, no matter what it's been labeled. I'm in no way against psychology at all, but, and hear this, Whenever we start using new technical language to describe what humans have always struggled with, there's a danger to think we are now somehow outside of the jurisdiction of Jesus. That makes sense? Jesus doesn't get updated DSMs. He's never surprised by a new diagnostic. He doesn't take notes during psychology class. Like, oh, wow, that makes sense. So that's why... Okay, no. Jesus is the smartest person that's ever existed. He's the king of glory, and he created your brain, and he has something to say to you. And so don't think because I have a lot of syllables in my diagnosis, Jesus can't understand. That's not true, and that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. Once again, love, helpful insights into the human condition, truly. I hope that makes sense. All right, now we are ready to push deeper into our text and here's how we're going to approach it this morning. The, the big idea of Jesus' words today to his disciples, to Christians, is do not be anxious. And as I've studied, I see at least eight ways Jesus gives us to strike anxiety at the root. So that's, that's where we're headed. The first way is this. Number one, choose 
choose to listen to Jesus. Let me show you what I mean here. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Remember in the parable, he talks to his soul. Jesus is contrasting. No, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll put on. He doesn't tell them to not be anxious. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious. So much of the battle in the Christian life hinges on this question. What voice will I choose to listen to? And so it is with anxiety. Whose voice are we going to listen to concerning ultimate reality? To our own internal dialogue, an echo chamber of despair, the news feed that offers up a thousand tragedies an hour, or is there a voice that is more authoritative? David Pallison, a Christian counselor, had a really helpful insight here. He says this, such a sweet guy. He says, let's not call anxiety a disorder. Let's, let's call it a perceptive way to relate to reality. <laughs> we live in a fearful world where everything we love is vulnerable. So we have very good reasons to be anxious. But God gives better reasons to trust him. In John 10, 33 through 34, this is what Jesus is doing to his disciples. I have said these things to you that you might not be anxious, that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We must choose, and we can, we must choose to make Jesus' voice the loudest one in our minds. He is the only one who can say on good authority, I tell you, do not be anxious. He's the only one who can say that on good authority because he's the only one who knows the beginning from the end, and he's the alpha and the omega. He calls himself that to comfort our anxious hearts. He says, I've surveyed it all. And here's my verdict for the Christian. You don't need to be anxious. So anxious Christian, choose to listen to Jesus. Do whatever you need to do to hear his voice every day. Post promises on your mirror from Scripture. Make John 10.34 the background of your phone. Whatever you need to do, let Jesus, the authoritative voice, be the loudest voice in your life. I was meeting with my spiritual director this week, and something she said in her prayer struck me so deeply. This is what she prayed. She said, Lord, let Brooks hear the voice of the shepherd, not the voice of the thief. That was worth the price alone right there. Choose to listen to Jesus. Hear the voice of the shepherd, not the voice of the thief. Number two. How do we strike anxiety at the root? Get specific about what makes you anxious. This is very practical. Verse 22 again. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, specifically what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And as we know, Jesus' teaching here doesn't occur in a vacuum. He isn't speaking vaguely about anxiety. He had just taught the crowds about the dangers of making earthly pleasures your ultimate treasure, and now he turns to his disciples 
and he brings that to bear on what this will look like specifically for them. Remember, these disciples had left their entire livelihood to follow Jesus. Peter and Andrew had literally dropped their nets and turned their back on the family business to follow Jesus. This is no small thing. And back in Luke 9, Jesus mentioned that they don't even know where they're going to sleep from night to night. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And now in a short while, these disciples are going to be sent out by Jesus to spread the gospel with much uncertainty about how they would provide practically for themselves and their families. There would certainly be times when going back to fishing, to the familiar and the consistent, would seem much more appealing than preaching persecution and poverty. So Jesus gets specific about what their very real fears are and will be going forward. And there is great wisdom here. If we want to tame our anxiety, we have to name what makes us anxious. So I encourage you, homework here, to take some time today or tomorrow, grab 30 minutes, hit pause on your heart, and take some real inventory. What makes me anxious? Give it a name so that when you feel it happening, you can say, hey, I, I know what you are. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 is, is a wonderful way to pray through this. It says, search me, O God, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. This is what we're talking about here. Search your heart, write it down, and then lead it into the way everlasting. Maybe you have one column, anxieties, another column, promises. Or as Peter put it, prepare your mind for action. How do we strike anxiety off at the root according to Jesus? Choose to listen to him, then get specific. And number three, remember that life is more than this physical reality. This, this is the next point he makes. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Why? For life is more than, there it is, why? Because life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So up until now, we've been speaking more generally about anxiety. And now we enter more into the heart of the text where Jesus is addressing again this specific anxiety that his disciples are encountering. And he has an especially keen insight here that we would do well to listen to. He is essentially asking them, what do you think is the essence of your life? That word for life in the text here is the Greek word psyche, which can mean life, but it can also mean soul or entire person. So Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about life, what most people think life is, physical reality, because life, your soul, is this. There's all this. That's, that's the point he's making, and, and he's pointing to our temptation to think that we are just essentially physical beings. Even as Christians, we often live like functional atheists. This is the fight of faith, to set our minds on things above. For Christ is seated. Why? Well, I can't see Christ seated right now. The Bible knows that's hard. That's why Peter said, even though you don't see him, you love him. This is, this is the fight of faith, to set our minds on things above. And when we forget this, when we look just to physical realities, 
anxiety is sure to grow? This is the question. What does it mean to be human? This is what Jesus is wrestling with. How do you answer that question? You are more than just this physical frame. There is something infinitely more valuable about you. And this is why our culture of vanity and consumerism leaves us so empty and so anxious. It's a hyper-focus on temporal stuff. It's not a wider focus like Jesus says. It's rather a a hyper-focus on temporal stuff that does not honor the fact that we are eternal beings and we run on spiritual fuel. The physical life is a thin, fragile reality, and it leaves us empty if our hope is in that. We all know it when we open up that Amazon Prime package. We're so excited about it. Open it up, and within five minutes, the high is gone. It's because nothing from Amazon can satisfy you. It's true. Amen, brother. Jesus knew this. Isaiah 53, 2, prophesying about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Physically, unimpressive. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's Isaiah. So according to earthly physical standards, Jesus was not impressive. He was not especially attractive. He was from a poor family, and he was from a bad part of town, Nazareth. If we judge the value and glory of life based on physical realities alone, Jesus would not have been impressive. Yet he was and is the all-powerful king of glory. So let's fight the drift against a hyper-focus on the physical. Let's push back against consumerism. Jesus says, and we know it from experience, this will make you anxious. Life is so much more than that. Yet here, Jesus doesn't complete this thought fully. He says that life, your your psyche, your whole person is more than the physical. Yet the question that is left, left after these verses that begs to be answered is, okay, well then what is life? It's not that. What is it? What was I created for? Well, he is going to answer that later on down in the text. So we'll, we'll just set that aside for a moment and we'll revisit that here in a few minutes. The fourth way to strike anxiety at the root, according to Jesus, is this. Find your value in God. Find your value in God. Verses 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor barns, let alone bigger barns. But God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Christian, God values you. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. God highly values you. God cherishes you. And if we're honest... Much of our anxiety comes because we are deeply insecure about our value. Do I matter? Do I have any significance at all? Our sense of value often feels like a pitcher of water with multiple slow leaks, and so we're constantly needing to refill it, usually by looking to others to affirm it. 
And this is both exhausting and unreliable. Now, of course, it isn't bad to want others to approve of us. It, it would be strange if my wife said, you look great this morning, honey, and I, I love you. And I said, I don't care. My value is not contingent on that at all. That would be a bizarre way to respond. Um, here's the thing. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying if I make her approval of me the primary way I feel valued, that's the key, the primary way that I feel valued, well, then we'll just both be miserable. I'll be super needy and she'll be super annoyed. So this is all hypothetical, obviously, right? Uh, and this is a large part of the reason, and this is, listen to this, this is a large part of the reason social media and phone addiction is so prevalent in our time. We post something and then we check back again. Then we check back again. How many likes did I get? How about comments? Because that's a bigger dopamine rush. Comments are than likes, isn't it? Yeah. That's interesting that we do that. We're looking for value. We want to believe that we matter. And that is such a thin way for a soul to be satisfied. But we're addicted to it because there is a physiological component to what's happening. We really do get a dopamine rush when that happens. The circuitry of our mind is being messed up by these things. I read this Harvard study on this very thing this week. He said, smartphones have provided us with a virtually unlimited supply of social stimuli, or so we think. Every notification, whether it's a text message or a like on Instagram or a Facebook notification, has the potential to be a positive social stimulus and a dopamine influx. So we get this physiological hit, value, connection, but it's not real. And so we check back over and over and over again. This is what's happening. This is why we constantly are reaching. We're looking for our value. And this may seem a little silly, but it's really not. It's really not. It's evidence that we are questing for connection. We are questing to want to know, do I, do I matter? And of course, this falls totally flat for two reasons. One, there is always 10 million people that are prettier with more likes and a more perfect home, a more perfect family, and a more perfect job. So seeking approval virtually always leads to comparison, which makes everybody a loser. And number two, no amount of human validation will ever be able to fill your picture. We don't need more human validation. We need divine affirmation. That's what, that's what we're questing for. But anxieties can't thrive long when we are thoroughly confirmed in our God-given value. Why? Because if the Creator values us, well, then we're good to go. He'll give us everything we need. What do we do with things we value? We protect them, we cherish them, we feed them. And this is the sweet gospel logic of Romans 8.32, which we love so much here at the Axis. It says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Creator cherishes you, so He will give you everything you need to glorify Him in the way that He's called you to do. So Christian, could it be that some of your anxiety comes because you are looking to relationships or social media or a job or a stage to be confirmed that you matter, 
This is exhausting and unsatisfying, and this is a pitcher with a hundred cracks that leaks as soon as it's filled up. We all know this is true. So let's put down our screens and let's go to the park. Here are the birds. I don't think this is just a throwaway metaphor. I think he means it. Listen to the birds. When you hear it, remember God values you so much. The fifth way to strike anxiety at the root from Jesus today is this. Number five, embrace your limitations. I love this one. (laughs) I just wish I could see his face when he said it. He must have been smirking. He said, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? That's easy (laughs) to do, according to Jesus, for him. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, well, why are you anxious about the rest then? I love that. Here Jesus gives some refreshingly straight talk. And while it might bruise our egos at first, it certainly frees our souls. We should not be anxious, Jesus says, because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't work. All it does is make you feel miserable. You aren't in control, and you can't even add an hour to your life. When I lived in Pasadena, one of the best things I could do for mental health, especially when I was feeling anxious, is is to go for a hike. There was a trailhead about 10 minutes from my apartment, And just a short hike up, I would turn a corner and there would be the entire Los Angeles basin before me. And it was the sweet gift of perspective. My entire world I could cover up with my thumb right there. This is all the stuff that causes me all my anxiety. And it's so small. There's such a huge world out there. What a gift. And this is exactly what the Lord is doing here. He's giving us the gift of perspective. Oh, how healthy it is to remember that we are finite and to embrace that, not kick against it. That we are not the center of the world, or as G.K. Chesterton once put it, how much larger our life would be if our self could become smaller in it. The cold water of reality that Jesus splashes in our face is a gift, especially for someone like me who can get lost in the catacombs of my inner life. Just get all tied in knots because I'm the center of my world for that moment. He's saying, calm down. Oh, little one, if you could only see the whole picture, how small you are, but how good and powerful your father is, and he is totally for you, that would help. And anxiety turns out, in the end, to be such an unbearable burden because it gives us all of God's responsibility without any of his power. That, that's at the root of anxiety, right? We take on all of his responsibility, but we don't have his power. Jesus encourages us to strike anxiety by embrace your limitations. Let God be God. Number six, as we move on, verses 27 through 28, acknowledge your need for faith. Very simple, very profound. Consider the lilies. So we're still on our nature walk. I love this. How they grow. Consider them. Look at them. They don't toil or spin. They're not stressed out. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. You know Jesus is smiling there, right? You need to know that. That's important on how that lands. If you grew up thinking Jesus was scowling and his arms were crossed, that'll feel different. That's not true. That's why we're doing the series. To see the real Jesus. He's compassionate. Again, he argues from the lesser to the greater to remind us of God's care for us. Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, who had more glory than any king in history, can't even compete with the glory of a lily. We're so temporal and fragile. Therefore, God will care for you. And Jesus even goes further here. He gets closer to the center. He cuts deeper into the root of anxiety. He says explicitly to his disciples now what he has been saying implicitly. You're anxious because you don't really think God will come through. You have little faith. As I said, Jesus is not being harsh, but he is revealing the truth of our hearts that lead to anxiety. We can't see God, so we get fixated on the physical, forgetting that there is an entire spiritual world behind it that is more real than the physical, and our faith wanes. And he is saying, when you feel that, stop and pray for faith. We can do that, right? So we've already named our anxiety. We can feel it rising up, hit pause. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is a precious prayer. Jesus says yes to that prayer. All right, moving on. So earlier Jesus told us in point two that our life, our psyche is more than the physical, but he didn't fully complete his thought. Well, now he does. He comes full circle and gives us the seventh way to strike anxiety at the root, and it's also a significant transition in our time. The previous six had been like shovels at the root, and the next two are the heavy machinery. They're the backhoe in comparison, and the seventh is this. How do we strike anxiety at the roots? Live in light of the kingdom of God. Live in light of the kingdom of God. Verses 29 through 31. So 29, he restates the point he made earlier. Don't be anxious. Don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Don't be anxious about that. For all the nations of the world seek after those things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, here's the turn, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. He's saying there are two kingdoms that you can be about, the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God. And if you are part of the kingdom of God, your cares should look very different than the cares of this world. That's the point. He's making everybody's anxious about the physical reality. Of course they are. That's not a novel way to live. But you, Christians, should be different because you know there's a higher reality. It comes down to what your treasure is. Christ and eternal life or worldly treasure? Because finding the kingdom of God, finding salvation from death to life is like finding a treasure that makes everything else seem small in comparison. That's what it's like. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. So man finds a treasure, can't believe he found it, 
He buries it. He covers it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy this field that has a greater treasure. Everything he once thought was incredible is now small in comparison to the treasure. Have we found that treasure? This will make no sense if you haven't found Christ to be your treasure. I wonder how many times the disciples recall these words when they were sitting in prison or being beaten or were abandoned by their friends and family. The only thing that could have sustained them was an unshaken confidence that they had found something that was well worth all of it. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 3.7. So remember, he's writing from prison here. Whatever gain I had, whatever treasure I used to think was a treasure, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he goes further, I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in comparison in order that I may gain Christ. So if it's Christ, it'll just cost you everything. Paul says, what a deal. What a bargain. That stuff that'll be forgotten in two years Oh, it's a small price to pay. <laughs> to get the kingdom is to get Christ. It's to finally be at peace with God, which is the deepest longing of your soul and mine. Every anxiety you've ever had and every longing you've ever felt comes from a desire to be reconciled back to the Father. To live again under His rule and reign and to know His face is smiling upon you. To come back home again. what we were created for. That's why we long for it. That's why we're so homesick and so disoriented here. That's why Jesus says, seek the kingdom. Lift your eyes up to a higher horizon. That's the reason he says that. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what Jesus came to do, to come to us why our souls were racked with sin and quivering with fear, and to take on all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our fear, and to carry it to the cross and to absorb all of God's just wrath against it so that we could be okay, so that we could be saved, so that we could be reconciled back to God and finally be at peace, to find shalom, to finally silence every fear and every anxiety. Stand amazed again at Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. This is incredible. Okay, so we're thinking, does the gospel have anything to say to my anxiety? So keep that here as we read this. This is amazing. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, we're human. Jesus himself, likewise, became human. He partook of the same things. Why? That through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That might be the best definition of anxiety I have ever heard. Slavery to fear. 
That's the reason he came. Yes, he's interested in your anxiety. It is the psychological upshot to the gospel. Christ is for me. God is happy with me now. Okay. Eternity is looking good now. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus, through his death, destroyed the devil, the one who wields death and fear and shame like a weapon. He destroyed his power decisively. But that's only part of the gospel, what we've been saved from. And in Colossians, the Apostle Paul gives them and us, by extension, a glorious picture of the other half, what we've been saved to. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. He says, Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance, to, to share in the kingdom of the saints in light. He has delivered us. So here we see the juxtaposition of kingdoms. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel, and this is kryptonite to our anxiety. Of course we have trials on this earth, but Jesus came to overcome the world, and of course we feel lonely at times, but Jesus was abandoned for our sake to reconcile us back to the Father. And of course our job is frustrating, but Jesus has done all the work we need to do to be made right with God, so there waits for us an eternal rest because of the work Christ has done. And of course... We grieve death now. But Jesus went toe-to-toe with death on the cross and defeated the power of death so that through him, Christian, you will never die. That's good news. And seeking the kingdom isn't a one-time thing. It's not just becoming a Christian. We continually seek the kingdom every day, both by pursuing Christ in word and prayer in Christian community, and by doing excellent work wherever we're at, and by loving even, and especially when it costs us something. In all these things, we are telling the world there is a better and truer story. There is a better and truer kingdom. And the amazing thing, friends, this gospel is a gift from God to us, which brings us to our eighth and concluding point. How do we strike anxiety at the roots? We live for the kingdom and, number eight, know the love of the Father. Verses 32 through 34. This is so precious. Fear not, little flock. You're so anxious. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You may say, This seems too good to be true. If you knew my story, there's no way I would be welcome into the kingdom. Jesus just beat you to it. He says, no. Not only will your father give you the kingdom, it is his delight. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail. Amazon package, fail. Treasures in the heaven, eternal, abiding, ever-increasing joy. 
where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Christian, do you hear the deep love of your Father for you here? Do you hear the tender care He has for us? He longs to bring you into His kingdom. It's His delight to give Himself to you. And this is the great thing that finally quiets all of our fears, the loving presence of our Heavenly Father. This is the answer to all our anxiety. Fear not, for your Father is with you, and His love for you is wider and deeper than all the oceans of the world. This is how David fought the fight of faith here. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so I should be scared if this world is all there is, valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. As I was was considering these final verses, I wondered about the tension that Jesus felt in saying these words. Because Jesus knew something that the disciples didn't know. Jesus knew what that promise cost. Jesus knew what he would have to pay to make good on that promise. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11 had already said it. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put on him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, whose guilt? Our guilt. Jesus' soul would have to make an offering for guilt. And then he shall see his offspring. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What was the will of the Lord to give you the kingdom? What was the good pleasure of the Lord to give you the kingdom? And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So when Jesus in eternity surveys all who are in the kingdom now and compares it to what it cost him, he'll say, so worth it. I am satisfied with my work. Oh, the immense love of God for you, friend, that he sent his son to bear all of our griefs, to bear all of our guilt, and to finally silence every fear that has plagued us since the fall. So yes, there certainly are techniques we can use to help cope with our anxiety, but the only way to find the peace your soul longs for is by looking to Christ. The only way to find the satisfaction your soul longs for is by trusting in Christ in his perfect life on your behalf, on his substitutionary death for you, on his glorious resurrection, and on his ascension where he now stands as king of glory. Trusting in him alone, trusting that he has accomplished everything needed for you to be at peace eternally, well, that helps. And as the text concludes, as Christ becomes our treasure, it will inevitably change the way we live because we'll be living beneath a new economy, the economy of the kingdom, where bigger barns seem kind of silly because they're going to be destroyed by some hipster and made into a table, (laughs) which then will be gone soon. Or you could not focus on that stuff and be wildly generous and send up treasure into eternity. 
It's a wise investment. That's what Jesus is saying. So Axis Church, little flock, fear not, because your loving Father cannot wait to bring you into his kingdom and give you the gift of himself forever. That's what shalom is. We will need no son because the lamb will be the lamp. His glory will pervade. We'll be fully known and fully loved. And it'll be sweet. Father in heaven, thank you that this is true. I pray right now against the evil one who would seek to snatch the seed away. As the balm of the gospel has been laid out, Holy Spirit, I pray that you impress it into our souls. Father, for my friends here who anxiety is not theory for them, it is daily struggle. I pray that you would breathe peace over them now. I pray that things would get very simple in this moment. They were estranged from their father, so of course they were scared. And Christ came to save them, so of course they're okay. Help us believe. Lord, we, we do believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.